It is good to be with you, and I don't use that language usually, uh, uh, loosely. I am a people person, and so um, I really do miss being with people. Uh, maybe you have the same sentiment. So I am, if you're like me, um, a lot of these experiences that we're continuing to navigate are challenging and um, certainly produce a wide range of emotions, and certainly as we uh, face uncertainties, um, hopefully you are finding space to smile. Maybe laugh with people, um, maybe chuckle a little bit with loved ones. Hopefully you're having some time to do those things, so it is good to be with you. Do me a favor, uh, the sermon this morning is going to come out of John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, and I'm, and I'm fairly confident that you might know this verse. So if you know it, say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right, that he, whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. There you go, everlasting life or eternal life. Everybody's uh, memorized a little bit different version. There is a lot packed in to this tiny verse. And I would probably say that John 3.16 is arguably maybe the we- most well-known verse in the Bible. In fact, if you were just to bring up John 3.16, uh, there's a good chance that most would be able to recite it or maybe even recall it, at least maybe even know what's there, whether that's an unbeliever or a believer, right? People get it. People have heard it. In fact, you will find John chapter 3, verse 16, printed under coffee cups. You will find it on signs. Leslie told me this morning that he was going to put it on a sign and have it held up in the crowd this morning. You will find it under the eyes of athletes. And you, unfortunately, maybe for some of you, maybe you, Mind this, maybe you don't mind this. You're going to find it on tattoos. All right? It is all over pop culture. It is one of the first memory verses uh, memorized by children. All right? Um, It has been said to describe the gospel in a nutshell. Some have called it the very essence of Christianity because it very eloquently describes how God feels about his creation. However... How often do we consider the context in which it's found or its implications? So, before we begin, pray with me if you would one more time. Father, I'm grateful for who you are. We are grateful for who you are. We are grateful for opportunities to be together. Father, even if it means just being together physically in this room or being with others online as we are right now. Father, we are grateful for those opportunities. Father, may we continue to look to you. May we continue to look to your son. Father, it's in his name that we focus this morning, the name of Jesus. And through the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So before we begin, let's, you got to have a Bible with you or whatever you're using, maybe an app or your phone, um, open to John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. And we're going to pick up there in the narrative, to actually um, see where today's text originates. And you're going to hear voices of Jesus. You're going to hear the voices of Nicodemus. And you're going to likely hear the voice of John, the author of the Gospel of John. So I'm going to begin reading in John chapter 2, verse 23. And I'm going to read through John chapter 3, verse 21. So here we go. When he was in Jerusalem... During the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs that he was doing. 
But Jesus, on his part, would not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to testify about anyone. For he himself knew what was in everyone. Now there was a man named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, a Pharisee. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do apart from the presence of God, Jesus. Indeed, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus, how, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can, can one enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of flesh is flesh, and what is born of spirit is spirit. Nicodemus, don't, don't be surprised. Don't be astonished that I've said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the spirit. Nicodemus, how can these things be? Jesus, are you a teacher of Israel and that you don't understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you do not believe me, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. So, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So that everyone who believes in Him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son of the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And those who believe in Him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are already condemned, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, this is the verdict, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come into the light. So their deeds may not be exposed, but those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. I've been thinking a lot about the world imagined in John chapter 3. In fact, I spent this entire last week just imagining this environment of John chapter 3 in the world of Nicodemus and I find myself after this week being a little more generous and a little more sympathetic to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, honorable Pharisee, leader of the Jews, respected rabbi, he's influential, someone who knows his Bible. He's well acquainted with his Jewish heritage in the Old Testament. Nicodemus is curious. He's intentional. He's astute. And I think he's quite courageous. But I imagine today, the day I'm imagining, that Nicodemus is rather weary, 
and exhausted. Nicodemus has seen a lot in his lifetime. As a matter of fact, in John 7, you have this scene, and I'm confident that he has continued to see the hatred in their faces, wrinkled with anger and bursting with rage. It hadn't been that long ago since he had spoken up to the chief priest and his colleagues as their anger and animosity over Jesus grew. We told you to bring him in. Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, declared the guards. You mean he's deceived you also? Has any of the rulers or Pharisees believed in him? No. And maybe, just maybe, seizing the opportunity, hoping to exert a little bit of his influence, Nicodemus says this, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? Or maybe you can see their jaws clenched and their fists tight as they looked at him with that same searing anger in their eyes and they accused him of having joined Jesus and responded to Nicodemus, What? Are you from Galilee too? So maybe even if Nicodemus was a sympathizer then, we have no response from Nicodemus and he simply fades out of the scene in John chapter 7. But by now, Jesus has... Turned water to wine, he's healed sick children, he's commanded invalids to get up and walk again, he's fed thousands, he's restored sight to those who were born blind, he's raised Lazarus from the dead, but he has done nothing, sign after sign after sign, he's done nothing to deserve the wrath of this world, he was innocent, he was kind, he was compassionate, and I still think that Jesus is the very essence of love. But no one, not even Nicodemus, could stop the tidal wave of chaos and anger and animosity that has been unleashed on Jesus. Betrayed by one of his own, bound, beaten, taken before Pilate, brutally flogged, and then handed over to be crucified. I imagine that the emotions and the intensity of the last few days had been almost unbearable for a man of Nicodemus's age. And maybe seeing Jesus almost unrecognizable, disgraced, bleeding profusely, swollen and bruised, crown of thorns pressed deeply into his scalp, purple robe draped over him, that just maybe Nicodemus had seen enough, at least maybe more than his eyes could stand to bear. The city was rumbling with violence and tension. The crowds were shoulder to shoulder as they forced Jesus to carry his cross to the place where he'd soon be lifted up. And in the distance, you and I, and even maybe then, you could still hear the animated mobs of people, a world in darkness, crying out, cheering with a twisted sense of spite and wickedness as they chanted, crucify him, crucify him. Nicodemus, maybe, just maybe Nicodemus couldn't bear to journey with those crowds. And maybe he wasn't sure if he could stomach the sight of this gentle Jesus being crucified. But something was drawing him there. Something was calling him to go and see. 
he had continued to wrestle with Jesus' words and his teachings. He witnessed with his own eyes Jesus heal people and sign after sign, the very things used to point others to Jesus. Nicodemus knew that he was no ordinary teacher. He knew that he had come from God, but was there more? And I imagine Nicodemus slowly walking towards the place of the skull, moving closer to the cross of Jesus, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, hopefully, with the Spirit's help, cognitively moving closer to recognizing who Jesus really was. Even though he hadn't comprehended the significance of who Jesus was. He hadn't stopped watching. He hadn't stopped listening. He hadn't stopped thinking. He was still mesmerized, still conflicted. There has to be more. Who is this guy? He's from God. Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is it, is it possible that he's the Messiah? And I imagine Nicodemus, as others, their minds were racing. Maybe as Nicodemus walked towards the place where Jesus was about to be crucified, maybe, just maybe, he reflected on that night where he first met Jesus. And it had been almost six months ago since he'd spoken with Jesus on that cool night, and he could still remember the breeze. And the noise of the day had dissolved, and the hustle and bustle of the town had calmed down a bit, and the crowds had dissipated Jesus, the ever-gracious host, had accepted Nicodemus' invitation to visit with him. In fact, Nicodemus knew that Jesus loved his time around the table with others, and he welcomed anyone and everyone to eat with him. And Nicodemus had so many questions for Jesus, but that night Nicodemus walked away with far more questions than when he first arrived. What did Jesus mean that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. How can anyone be born again after having grown old? How is it possible that someone like me, a Pharisee, a Jewish leader, the teacher of Israel, can't enter the kingdom of God unless I'm born of water and spirit? Yes, Jesus, quite frankly, I'm a little bit astonished and surprised that you would even say that or speak that to me. What do you mean the Son of Man has to be lifted up just like Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness? Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the, the, the Pharisee, the honorable Pharisee, leader of the Jews, respected rabbi, influential, someone who knows his Bible, well acquainted with his Jewish heritage and the Old Testament. He is now perplexed, astonished, and speechless, as a matter of fact, literally speechless, because we don't hear from Nicodemus again after what he says in verse 9 when he says, How can these things be? And I imagine Nicodemus continued to ask that question over and over again in his head as he walked towards the place of the crucifixion. How can this be? How can this be? And so I ask you this, have you ever had one of those moments in your life where when all of a sudden everything that you were confused about or everything that you had questions about, all in an instance, just like that, became clear? Um, maybe for those of you that have seen the movie, uh, I won't spoil the movie for you, but maybe for those of you who've seen the movie, The Sixth Sense, and that moment towards the end of the movie, 
Right? When Malcolm Crowe realizes something very specific about the film that he's been navigating through, even those who have been watching the movie, all of a sudden, we're pulling at our head and going, are you kidding me? All this time. Have you ever had one of those moments? I imagine Nicodemus approaching the place where Jesus was being crucified, carefully shuffling himself through the remaining crowd of spectators. Many were passing by, many were still hurling insults at Jesus, but he could hear maybe the weeping and the despair. And I imagine that his old eyes came into focus as he emerged from the crowd, and it was as if time stopped. There stood Nicodemus, looking up at Jesus. Can you see him? Can maybe you put yourself at the foot of the cross and just imagine Jesus there? But can you imagine the scene? As he witnessed Jesus lifted up on the cross, and I imagine that his eyes weren't the only thing that came into focus. The combination of the sights and the sounds and the smells and the breeze, I imagine, would have left anybody paralyzed. Jesus, the Son of Man, lifted up on the cross. The smell of his blood poured out for Nicodemus, poured out for the world. Could he see and hear Jesus' mother weeping? Did he hear the centurion maybe off to the side say, surely this man was the son of God? Um, Did he hear John and Jesus' dialogue with what little breath Jesus had left? Did he feel the breeze against his face? And did it remind him of Jesus' words about the Spirit? And I just simply imagine for anyone present that day, the combination of the senses would have been overwhelming. And maybe, just maybe, as he stood there with his heart stirring and burning within, as he heard Jesus' voice in his head, and as he played that conversation over and over again from six months ago, it was as if Nicodemus, just maybe, was seeing Jesus, really seeing Jesus for the first time. And at that moment, gazing at Jesus, he began to reflect. And maybe just then, those prophetic words of Jesus have become realized all in hindsight. Thank goodness for hindsight. Born again. Born from above, new birth, new creation. How did I miss what he was saying? Of course, the cleansing of human hearts, the inner transformation of the spirit. I should have known the kingdom of God has been right there in front of me the whole time. God's promise to restore, to give a new heart, a new spirit within us. He was right. How could I, a teacher of Israel, not see all of these things? Just as Yahweh provided a way for my ancient murmuring ancestors To be delivered in the wilderness, all they had to do was look to the serpent. New spiritual life exists for those who look to him. Those who turn to him, the lifted up one on the cross. It's Jesus who brings us into the family of God. He is the new birth. He is the entrance to eternal life. It's all grounded in the lifting up of the Son. The lifting up is grounded in God's love. The cross where God reveals his love Typically, our eyesight gets worse 
with age. But I like to think that just maybe Nicodemus' eyes were eventually opened. And I don't know if all the things that I've just imagined with you took place like they did, but John chapter 3, John chapter 7, and John chapter 19 all show this progression of Nicodemus. And we only have access to so many conversations and events, and you and I can fill in the gaps, and we can reflect, and we can wonder. But according to, to John, Nicodemus, once unprepared to publicly at least declare who Jesus was, we see him in John chapter 19, accompanied with a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who is labeled in the text as a secret disciple of Jesus, because, or a secret believer, because he is afraid. Of the Jews. Together, they go to Pilate and ask for the body of Jesus. The text says that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices, and together, those two men cleaned the body of Jesus and they wrapped him in linen before taking him to the tomb. Nicodemus is no longer with us, but I think that the essence of Nicodemus still. Exist. Surely Nicodemus isn't the only one in the dark. Surely he isn't the only one to ever see Jesus for who he really is. Surely he won't be the last religious expert to get Jesus wrong or misinterpret him. And so we have this fundamental problem. We have this fundamental problem and there is a divine solution and it goes like this. For God so loved the world. That human habitat in which you and I live, the place alienated from God, the entity personified as the opponent of Jesus, the world. The world, the environment where the story of Jesus takes place, but the world is also a character in the story. For God so loved this world. For God so loved you and me. The world created by him, the object of God's love, that he sent his son to save it. His only son lifted up on a cross so that everyone who looks to him, everyone who recognizes him, everyone who sees him, everyone who invests in him, everyone who follows him, everyone who, by the Spirit, develops his heart and mind, those who believe in him may not perish but have eternal life. Jesus' mission was a consequence of God's love. And the cross expresses the intensity of that love. And that love stresses the greatness of the gift because the Father gives His best. And humankind, whole creation is so beautiful, is so precious with its intentions and potentiality that its actualization, its fulfillment, and its redemption is worth dying for. And then all at once, the kingdom is thrown wide open for anyone and everyone, not just Israel. Church, the Spirit is on the move. <laughs> like a fresh breeze. Like a wind blowing where it chooses. And this story doesn't stop 2,000 years ago. The story of Jesus and the world is ongoing because after Jesus departs, 
The story of the disciples and the world begins. In church, our story as disciples and the world continues. And there is a world that is still in the dark and it is in desperate need of the light. And our role is to continue to point the world to the sun lifted up. So maybe, just maybe, rather than keep our distance and remain in the shadows and remain silent, may we be people who engage in this hurting and dark, broken world all around us just as Jesus did. For God so loved the world. This love encourages us. For God so loved the world, this love equips us. And so, for God so loved the world, this love enables us, disciples of the crucified Jesus, to follow the crucified Jesus into the world and engage. Church, may our eyes be open to Jesus. And as instruments of the kingdom of God, as expressions of how God feels about this world, may you and I extend that love to others. Would you please stand with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful for who you are. We are grateful for who you have always been and who you will be. And we are grateful for your divine plan to send Jesus to this place and to this world. And Father, may we be disciples who follow him. May we be disciples who lead others to him. May we, Father, be filled with your Holy Spirit and be on the move and engage in this world. Thank you for your continued presence and thank you for this church body. Father, may we continue to engage. And it's the name of your son, Jesus, and through the power of your Holy Spirit we pray.